Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Sherry Yarnell uh, put all those together for us the last three weeks. We've been having these reels go, and it's been really, really fun to see God's faithfulness over the last 10 years. Uh, before we continue our series, uh, 10 years in, 10 years out, I did want to share a little bit about what's coming up next. Um, we had mentioned already that next week is a day of service, which means there's one service at 9 a.m. If you come at 10, we're just going to put you straight to work, and that's fine. Uh, but come and join us for a, a brief 15, 20-minute worship service, followed by an opportunity to go and serve our community. Uh, it's, I just love this day. It's a really, really wonderful day. Uh, and then on November 22nd, that following Wednesday, is our Thanksgiving Eve service uh, at 7 p.m. It's one of our favorite services of the year. It's an opportunity to come and just really express our gratitude to God for all that he's accomplished in our lives personally and corporately. And so come join us at 7 p.m. No child care is provided, but we do encourage the families to come because we love when the kids get an opportunity to share about what they're thankful for, too. And then starting on November 26th, which is a Sunday, we are starting our Christmas series. Can you believe that already? You're talking about the Christmas already? I feel like it snuck up on us as it always does. We are starting a series called The Ghosts of Christmas Past. We are going to talk about how, you know, Christmas is supposed to be the most wonderful, most magical time of the year, but for many people, it's often a season of struggle. It's a season of pain. We're going to talk about the insecurities that haunt us, the labels that we tend to place upon ourselves the hurts that we have a hard time forgiving over this holiday season that oftentimes being with extended family or family uh, brings up, conjures up. And so we're going to talk about how to unshackle our hearts and our minds and our souls from these ghosts that oftentimes haunt us during this time of the season. So join us starting on the 26th. Invite your community to join us for this Christmas season. Well, today we're finishing up our series 10 years in, 10 years out. For the past two weeks, we've been celebrating God's faithfulness over the last 10 years of Restoration Church. In this series, we've been talking about the impact that God has made on individuals and us corporately. We're talking about some of the things that are happening currently, like what we're up to right now. And then I want to share a little bit about where we are going as well over the next 10 years. To begin, I want to talk about uh, the impact that God has made here at Restoration Church. I don't necessarily want to talk about it. I'm going to invite my good friend Wayne Yarnell. He's one of our elders to share how God has been impactful on his life and in the life of his family. So, Wayne, thanks for, thanks for being here. Thank you. So, yeah, as Ross said, my name is Wayne Yarnell. I think most of you maybe have seen me up here before. I don't like, I don't like to make a habit of it, but... Um, so... My wife, Sherry, and I, and Lucas is in the back, decked out in Carolina blue. Um, we have been coming to Restoration for the last nine years. And Josh, if you want to show my picture. Um, so that's little baby Eliza and like four-year-old, five-year-old Lucas-ish. Huh? Three-year-old, yeah. So our story started here at Little Blessings. Um, I think I've shared a lot about that. I won't belabor that point, but Little Blessings holds a special place in our heart. Um, but Ross asked me to, or asked if, if the elders would come and kind of share a little bit about what restoration has meant to us. And um, 
you know, we chatted a little bit this week about what that could look like. And, you know, I had this great plan of exactly what I wanted to say and, you know, all these little nice things that have happened. And, um, and it was going to be about empathy and compassion because those are two things that don't really come naturally to me. Um, I don't know if any of you share that, uh, but yeah, it's just not my strength necessarily to be super compassionate and empathetic. Um, but God had a different plan. He, he, uh, he had a day yesterday, a family day yesterday where wasn't a lot of compassion or empathy. Um, so although those things are still true, that this place has meant a lot to me in that way. And I've seen compassionate and empathetic people and wanted to mirror that. Um, yeah, he had a different message that I think he wanted me to share today. So I guess I'll, I'll try to, um, yeah, explain it in that I didn't live out the compassion or empathy yesterday. Um, and we, you know, it was not anything atypical for a family who just didn't have a good day together, but it was one of those days yesterday. Um, and there was, you know, yelling and crying and hurt feelings and all those things that come with family days like that. And um, so... I think what I want to, to, like, why am I telling you all this, right? I think what I want you to hear from me is that nine years ago, I never stand up in front of the church and tell you that I'm not perfect or that things aren't always good or, yeah. So I think what this church has shown me is that, you know, it's okay to not be okay, Um that this is a place where, uh, regardless of, yeah, who you are or how you're feeling that day, um, you're loved. And um, I hope that you guys see that because I, I certainly have, I guess, grown tremendously knowing that in these last nine years. So, yeah. Thank you, Ross. I told, I told Wynn yesterday that if um, only perfect people ever preached the gospel, that it would never be proclaimed. And that uh, oftentimes I think what I hope our community, the legacy that I hope that we as a church are able to leave behind is that we're a a place for sinners to come and be known and a place for sinners to come and be loved by the unconditional love of Christ. And then to be transformed, right, as they embrace restoration, that they are transformed into his likeness. And so that is really my hope for the legacy of, of restoration that they would experience, sinners would experience restoration, salvation, and transformation in the name of Jesus. Um, and so thanks for, thanks for being a part of this. Thanks for being a part of this for the last 10 years uh, and beyond. But this morning, we also want to celebrate what is. Uh, you may have heard that we've been working hard to open a coffee shop uh, that will tentatively open on November 25th. Let me say that again. Tentatively open on November 25th. Uh, some of you may be thinking, why are we doing this? Why are we building a coffee shop? So I look back on my notes, and the first time that I ever cast a vision for this was March of 2017 in a series titled BHAG. You guys remember that? Anybody around for BHAG? Here's what I said verbatim. People think that my vision of a restoration coffee shop is a playful banter, but it's not. Do you know what a coffee shop provides? It provides community. 
It provides a context for intimate conversation and deeper knowledge of another. This region sorely lacks this. We're too isolated. We're too individualistic. A coffee shop would not only provide our community with intimate communal space, but it could also function as a third space or a third service on a Sunday or a Friday night. And then I talked about all the empty buildings that, you know, sit around us and the use that they, they, could, uh, they could eventually go towards. And then I continued by saying this. How could we take these old useless buildings that some developer is going to snatch up to turn into another dollar store and create meaningful community space that are used for God's fame as we utilize them to love our neighbors in the name of Jesus? That was the first mention of the idea of a coffee shop in our community back in 2019. And then in a series titled Immeasurably More, I honed in on this idea as we discussed our three to five year goals. And this was back in 2019. And here's what I said. If we created a space that would be a natural draw, what if we created a space that would be a natural draw for our community, a space that naturally received our community every single day? What if we created a coffee shop? And I don't mean a church coffee shop full of church cliches and propaganda. I mean an attractive open space that would become the landing spot for intimate conversations between friends and neighbors, the office for those who work from home, the desk for high school students to work on group projects, the college students to study for finals, the living room for friends to play board games, the house of apologetics in a post-Christian but curious world, the resting place for tired and weary souls. What if beyond selling coffee and cupcakes and swag and a brand, we gave our community a place to belong? Think of Central Perk from Friends. Think of Tom's Diner from Seinfeld. Think of the Max from Saved by the Bell or Luke's Diner from Gilmore Girls. These became sacred spaces where people engaged one another on intimate levels. They became contexts that shaped the fabric of their friendships, which in turn shaped the fabric of of their lives. And when individuals are changed, households are impacted. And when households are changed, so are neighborhoods and eventually entire communities are changed. The goal is ultimately to see our region restored by the gospel and love of Jesus Christ. For Christ to occupy the heart, not just of individuals or our church, but of our whole community. These are tools to help us accomplish that task. If we want to reach people no one is reaching, we have to do things no one is doing. We have to think bigger. We have to think outside the box. And no, a church with a coffee shop is not unique, but a church that is in a community for the community, creating a space not with Christians in mind, but with the community in mind, This is not a coffee shop for Christians, though certainly Christians are welcome there. It is a gathering space for our community. That was four years ago. And here we are, after a lot of hard work, five years, uh, four years later, the bridge, coffee, and community is all set to open its doors in just two weeks. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. It's been a really wild ride. It's been a journey, but God's hand has been on this the whole process since the beginning. And even when the time frame and the timing and the delays have been so frustrating, we have seen God's hand at work through every single part. And we are exactly where we need to be to embrace our community with the love of Jesus in this place. So help us get the word out. Share on socials. Share with your friends. If you sign up to take flyers, we decided we weren't going to print actual flyers quite yet because the date is still tentative. Thank you. And once you put something out in print in the world, it's a little hard to erase that and take it back. So even if you don't like coffee, here's the thing. I don't like coffee, and yet we're building a coffee shop. So I still, I want to be there. I want to be present. I want to tell my community about it. Um, It's very, very, very exciting. So help us get the word out. Um, Whenever I see you on socials, if you wouldn't mind sharing, that would be really great. So we celebrate God's faithfulness and we'll continue to rely on God's faithfulness for what he is doing here. And so the next question is, since the bridge is ready to open, where is restoration going next? Isn't that the next question? What are we going to do next? So let me say this. I wrote this, hold on, I wrote this message for me this morning. 
And if you guys can benefit it, great. So I think you will. I think there's a lot here, and uh, I will try to keep this as, as quickly as possible this morning. But I wrote this message with myself in mind, and so keep, bear, keep that in mind as we go on. How many of you feel that we're busier than ever? We live in a world that is busier than ever. That's kind of cliche, I, I get it, you know, but it's very much true, I think. It's been documented in many places of how a snail's pace of life during the pandemic has been replaced with the rat race now. It's like we, we are, we're all feeling like if there's another pandemic, then we're going to lose something, right? And so we're all trying to shove so much of life into this period of time, thinking that we can never go back to what was, to what we experienced. And so we are going to take the most of life, and we are going to fill every single minute with so much stuff, and we are going to squeeze life out. This pendulum has swung beyond where it was in 2019. Most Americans admit to living unsustainable paces of life right now. We're simply doing too much, and it's creating a blanket of exhaustion over the world. Now, we may be guilty of this, right? We as a church may be guilty of this. Me as a family, we may be guilty of this. We're in a season of be rich, right? It's always such a wonderful time of the year. It's always such a wonderful season, but it's exhausting at times. We are um, we're in a season of exhaustion here. Um, there's a lot going on. We're building a coffee shop. Be Rich is fully thriving. Um, we don't do this every year, of course. We don't build coffee shops every year. Uh, we do do Be Rich every year, but our beyond that, like if you just think about your personal lives, our, ki- our kids are are historically busy. You know, I used to play travel baseball when I was a kid, but we didn't. Is nothing like travel baseball is today with kids. Um, I used to sing in all the top performing choirs, but it's nothing like what they're doing now. Like the the amount of activity they do, the year round activity that they do, the six days a week of baseball, like all that stuff, nothing like we used to do when we were kids. And then these things have to be funded, right? So when we're not actually doing the activity, we're fundraising to get our kids to the activity. There's a new sense of fatigue that is overwhelming most Americans. It's housed in social media, which is a fatigue in of itself, by the way. They're experiencing a lot of that. Uh, there's plenty of articles out there about how social media itself is fatiguing on American culture. Um, but we're constantly asked for things. You guys experience this? You just feel like you're constantly asked for things, to buy things, to sign up for things? This past week, I was asked by seven different people to, to buy Thanksgiving pies. And two of them are my own kids, right? So like, (laughs) there's so many people just asking for the same thing, and we're inundated with asks and requests. Everyone is trying to get our attention for their purposes, and there is an urgency to everything, which means that there's no margin. There's no margin just to sit and to be still in the present moment, and it can be very exhausting. And so the need to constantly be making decisions is, is a fatigue in and of itself. You go to the grocery store, and there's 39 different cereals and 20 different toothpastes, and you go out to dinner at one of the hundred different restaurants within three miles of your house and you read off a menu of 50 different items and it's like, it's just exhausting. The decision-making, the need to make decisions constantly, the choices, we are physically, emotionally, and mentally depleted by it all. And then we carry this fatigue to bed with us, which you'd think would be a place where we'd be alleviated from it, but the reality, most people just experience that the stress of the day carries with them into their sleep. You wake up at three in the morning, you can't shut your mind off and you keep thinking about all the things you have to accomplish. And now you have to do it on little to no sleep. And so what do we do at three in the morning? We reach over to our phones and we start scrolling or we start doom scrolling. We start making lists of all the things we have to do or we just go to work. Sociologists are saying that we have an umbilical cord attached to our phones. These things are our lifelines. They're not just instruments for work or communication or leisure. They are becoming an integral part of our humanity. 
we're seeing that we don't know how to live anymore without them. And the younger generations in particular, they are saying can't live without them. They are the trough we feed from for understanding our world and our community and ourselves. Most people have an average of 11 inboxes that they receive information and communication through. We have to constantly sift through the socials, the text messages, the Voxer, the Slacks, the emails, the Marco Polos. So as whenever we look at our phones, the average person has six messages on upwards to 11 different inboxes they need to respond to, which means we're constantly switching between tasks, responding to wildly different conversations, replying to social things and work-related things and kid-related things, and the brain wasn't designed to switch between tasks like that. There are days when I'll put in eight hours of work at my desk and I will have accomplished very little because all I'm doing all day is responding to my 11 different inboxes. So the brain is tired, and we're tired. Most Americans admit they are the most exhausted that they've ever been, and there is no relief in sight. Can anyone relate to that? Jesus would look all of us in the eye and say, that's not good for you. Jesus would look at all of us, he would look at America and say, the, the pace that you're running life, it's not good for you. Did you know that Sabbath was created for man? Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, he goes on to say, but Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was the first day of the week. It was a day of resting and being in community for re-energizing, a day of acknowledging who God is and what he has called his people to. God implemented a day of rest on our behalf because a day of rest is good for us. God said, I need you to rest because rest is good for you. If you do not rest, here's what's going to happen. You're going to wake up angry. You're going to be angry with your kids. You're going to be angry with your spouse more frequently because you need to rest. And when you try to, to function and work on a low battery, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for your community. You don't, I, I didn't create you to work that way. You're going to burn out. You're going to be edgy. You're going to be angry. You're going to be more impatient. And you cannot sustain a pace of exhaustion and function well as a human. And so when Moses gave his farewell address to the Israelites just before he died, he looked at it and exhausted people. And he said this, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord, your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Moses grounded his command to observe the Sabbath day in the Exodus out of Egypt. This is a really important, um, peace because he didn't do this all the time it was just here at deuteronomy after he had taken his people to the uh after the 40 the 40 years of wandering but the sabbath he is saying the sabbath the the the, the way to rest it's an act of defiance against the lifestyle of egypt the need to rest it's an act of defiance against the pharaoh himself the mentality of egypt in egypt you were slaves he would say remember that you were slaves in egypt and slaves they don't get a sabbath sabbath are you know Sabbath was for those who are free, but slaves, they're, they're less than human. A commodity to buy and sell, they only have value in what they produce, so they work all day, they work all night, every day, every night. If you're not working, then you're not valuable to me, and so we're going to get rid of you. There is no freedom to believe that it could be any different. There is no freedom to believe that uh, you matter if you are a slave. There is no freedom to believe that you could be anything other than what the slave driver tells you that you are. Without Sabbath, without rest... We lose our perspective on what it means to be rightly human. If we do not rest, we lose our perspective on what it means to be rightly human. And Sabbath and rest, they aren't options for slaves. Rest is a byproduct of freedom. And so no freedom, no rest. 
And when Moses asks Pharaoh to let his people go, here's how Moses, here's how the Pharaoh responds to Moses. Why are you taking the people away from their labor? Anybody ever hear a boss say that before? You are stopping them from working. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what the Pharaoh says. I will not give you more straw. Go and make your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. The slave drivers kept pressing them saying, complete the work required for you each day, just as you had, if you had straw. And Pharaoh said, you're lazy. That's what you are. You're lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw. You must produce your full quota of bricks. Get to work. You're lazy. To Pharaoh, it didn't matter what you produced. His response was always more, 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 more. I don't care how much you bring in. I need more. It wasn't just Pharaoh screaming for more and more, though. It was the economic system of Egypt as a whole, right? The Israelites weren't just making bricks. They were making supply houses for those bricks, a place for Pharaoh to store all of his excess stuff. The Pharaoh's appetite was insatiable. There was never enough bread. There was never enough wine, enough goods, enough chariots, enough services, enough bricks. It was a system of more. It demanded more every single day. He just needed more and more and more, more production, more content, more, more, more. Never content, always needing the latest and the greatest and the shiniest and the prettiest and the most advanced. Does any of this sound familiar to you guys? Pharaoh is alive and well here in America, I think, isn't he? He's that guilty feeling in your gut, that voice in the back of your head screaming at you, work harder, work faster, work longer hours, spend less time with your family because it'll mean you can produce more and more and more. You're only as good as your daily quota, so get to going on making more bricks. Have you ever tried to rest but feel guilty for doing so? I, I do this sometimes. You guys ever feel guilty for sitting down and taking a break, for taking some time for yourself? It's not only that we value hard work as a society, it's that when we rest, we are constantly thinking of all the things that we could be doing with this time, with this rest. All the ways that we could be getting ahead, all the ways we could be preparing for the week or preparing for more success, all the ways that we could be advancing our careers and climbing those social and corporate ladders. And when we rest, we feel like the day is more chaotic sometimes. You guys ever feel this way? It's like we almost feel like we're being punished for resting. It's like we take a day off, but then we get to work the next day, and it's like I have to do twice as much work now because I took a day off for myself. Now the rest of the week is just going to be chaotic. We almost feel like we're punished for taking a break. We almost feel like we're punished for going on vacation. We almost feel like we're punished for resting in a society that just says more and more and more and produce more and work harder and longer and do more and more and more. When we rest, so oftentimes we hear the Pharaoh's voice in the back of our heads, you're just lazy. Get back to work. Pharaoh isn't just a ghost. His economic system is thriving. We don't call it Egypt anymore. We call it capitalism or free market or you know, 0.0% financing or 30% off or Black Friday or whatever else you may want to call it within our society or whatever week it is. You can't drive down the road or a television or open a computer without being inundated with Egypt screaming at you. Billboards, marketing, commercials are everywhere. Who cares where it comes from or how it is made? We don't even know what the conditions behind the products that we consume are. We don't know how they're being produced. We don't know who is making them. We just consume them. We don't even know what it costs those below us. We work hard. We've earned it. We deserve it. And yet we don't have enough. And yet we don't even know where most of the stuff that we consume comes from. 
or the conditions that those people are living under or, or working under to get us the things that we take as luxuries. I mean, think about it. Egypt might be lousy if you're a Hebrew slave, but it's really nice if you're an Egyptian. And we're the Egyptians. You know who the slaves are? The rest of the world. We're making the stuff that we consume. In 1831, a French sociologist, this is back in 1831, think about this. He said this, American minds are preoccupied with meeting the body's every need and attending to life's little comforts. This is before central air conditioning and central heat. This is before toilet paper, widespread indoor plumbing, hot and cold running water, before sweatpants and sneakers, microwave popcorn, Uber Eats, Amazon Prime delivery, one-day delivery. I mean, all of this. This is way before all of the little comforts that we just take for granted as a people. We have bought into the lie that the greatest good is my own personal happiness, and I should get what I want because I've worked really hard to get what I want and to create the lifestyle that supports me and makes me comfortable. And so I should feel good about that. But I don't even know how that lifestyle is being created by the people underneath me. I'm the Egyptian. The rest of the world is the slaves making the lifestyle that I find comfortable. Because after all, I'm not concerned with other people's happiness. The greatest good is my own personal happiness, not your personal happiness. The greatest good for me as an American is my own personal happiness, not the rest of the world's happiness. I should be most concerned about me and myself, the world tells us. And so it seems perhaps that there's a little bit of Pharaoh in each of us, perhaps, if we think about it. It's an endless desire for more. With an endless pursuit of more comes restlessness and an unwillingness to stop. There's no way we can stop. The machine is, is too far progressed. What if my neighbor, the Joneses, get ahead? I can't stop. What if my daughter won't get what she's asking for? I can't stop. What if I can't provide all the things under the Christmas tree that my kids want? I can't stop. What if my kid doesn't make the team, right? What if he's not conditioning six days a week all year long? Then he's not going to make the team. I can't stop. What if my wife's self-worth is tied up in what she has? I can't stop. I need to keep padding that. What if I don't feel valued? I can't stop. So what do we do? We work more than we've ever before. The average America works, American works 47 hours per week. That's up six from 1973 when the market started staying open on Sundays, by the way. In the same time, rest went down 37%. Due in large part to technology, our so-called labor-saving devices have actually skyrocketed the amount of hours we work because we take our work home with us in our pocket every single day. And now we're not just doing work at the, at the desk at work, now we're doing it at the dinner table. Remember in 2002 when the Blackberry came out? People called it the Crackberry. There were tons of articles written about the dangers of working all hours of the day and night and having email and the internet in your pocket, and people were going crazy doing things like checking their email at the dinner table and before they went to bed at night nobody's talking about that anymore you know why it's normalized it's just what we all do but we must learn to power down unplug and disconnect we need to take a break we need to take a break we need to be in one place at one time we are not a machine and the lack of rest is creating a very troubled society in 1910 the average american got nine and a half hours of sleep now the average person gets six hours of sleep. And with such little sleep comes an increase in plethora of health issues, obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, they're all related to a lack of sleep. Depression, anxiety, substance abuse, cognitive reasoning, attention problems, memory functions, all related to a lack of sleep. 40% of the people indicate that they can't get through the workday without crashing. You guys ever have a crash hour? One to three, just wasted hours for me, every, almost every single day. I just crash. 20%, 27% of people drive drowsy. 
Last year, there were 115,000 car crashes associated with drowsy driving. We work more, we rest less. We spend $50 billion on sleep-related drugs and an equal amount on smart mattresses, hooded pillows, sleeping scarves, adult bedtime story subscriptions, sound machines, and other related products. Melatonin in our house. The main reason is because we just don't know how to stop, friends. We don't know how to stop. When our phones are the last thing we see each night because we had to scan social media one last time or check our email one last time, that blue light is interpreted in our brains as daylight and it suppresses the melatonin needed to go to sleep at night. So we wake up tired and we wake up cranky with less self-control. So we're more rude and less patient and more angry and less able to do our work. So we, we fall behind and we take our work home to the dinner table and to bed, which keeps us late, up late and it just creates this horrible, horrible cycle of dependency and it's not, that we, it's not just that we tend to work a lot. It's that in our drive for more and more and more, we're losing ourselves and becoming less human in the process. And it's, if it's not to produce more, it's to get more. When we don't work, we shop. We are the oppressed and our own oppressor. We are the slave and the slave driver in this story. We work more and we have more than ever before. We make up 24% of the global economy, spending $20 trillion a year as a nation, even though we only have 4% of the world's population. America owns one-sixth of the world's goods, and because we can't keep it, we built storage cities like Pharaoh to keep it all to the tune of $40 billion a year. The average house is up 1,000 square feet in the last 50 years, but the average family size has been cut in half. We spend 80% of our free time taking care of the things we own, which means less family time for doing things that we enjoy, for spending time with our family. Americans have less hobbies than ever before and enjoy fewer experiences, but we all have more stuff. Since 1950, the per capita income of the American household has tripled to $46,000, but the average globally is $8,000. In the poorest countries, it's less than $500. These are often the people that do not have medicine to fight off curable diseases, such as malaria, which is contracted because they can't afford a $10 mosquito net to cover their bed at night. These people often don't have opportunities for education, and half of them will die before they reach the 12th grade. Only about half of these countries' population have access to clean water or sanitation, and because of this, roughly 6,000 children will die today because of digestive problems. But these are the children, these are the people who are making the goods that we enjoy. These are the people who are making our luxuries, who are providing us with the comfort that we have. Pharaoh is alive and well. And what's so ironic is that with all this stuff, the fulfillment of the American dream that was promised to bring us happiness, we're as unhappy as we have ever been. There has been a steady decline in American happiness since the 1950s. We spend $250 billion on prescription drugs every year. Antidepressants are the second most popular prescription in the U.S. after cholesterol medication. 13% of people are on antidepressants at any given time. Mental illness is exploding. The suicide rate is higher than it's ever been. We're the most obese nation, the most unhealthy nation, but one of the least satisfied nations. Fewer are reporting that they think their work is meaningful work, and fewer are satisfied with their home life, their marriage, and their relationship with their children. So, to sum it up, we, more, we work more than ever, we have more than ever, and we're more miserable than ever before. Welcome to Restoration, friends. 
So here's the thing, maybe putting our self-worth, maybe putting our identity, maybe putting all of our hope and our dreams in this stuff, in this pace, in this vision that we've created that we think we can only attain by the amount of we work and the production that we, that we create, maybe it's not good for us after all. Maybe it's not a good idea. Maybe placing our personal value and the value of our stuff isn't wise or good for us. Maybe never stopping to rest isn't healthy. Maybe it's just Egypt all over again. This is why Moses calling the Israelites to remember they were slaves in Egypt is important. The command isn't just to remember that they were slaves. The command is to remember they were slaves in that they're not slaves anymore. We're not slaves anymore. And so why are we living like we're slaves anymore? Why, why, why do we just keep pushing the envelope and pushing the boulder? Why do we just keep going and going and going? We are not slaves anymore. Just like in Israel, we forget that the Pharaoh is dead. There are no more slave drivers, no more quotas. We are free. We don't have to work seven days a week. Our value isn't tied up in how much we produce. Sabbath is an act of resistance to Pharaoh and his systems. Egypt's cycle of brick-making and supply city building is unending. Sabbath is a way to break the addictive cycle to work and say enough is enough. Sabbath is a day to say no to Pharaoh and his mentality and the, and the philosophy that we just need to keep going and keep working and keep doing and keep producing and do more and more and more because if we don't, then our value will never rise to what we hope it will. And we're not going to be seen for what we have. We're not going to be known for what we produce. And our kids are never going to become the professional athlete. It's an act of resistance to Pharaoh and his system. Sabbath is a way of saying enough. Enough work. Work is good, friends, but it is not the thing. It cannot be the thing. There's more to life than production. There's more to life than accomplishment. Sabbath is a way to break our addiction to more. We need to rest one day a week we need to set aside at least one day a week we need to set aside a break from our work so that we can be together with the people we care about at least one day is set aside to to remember that we are under god's provision and that we don't need to work to provide that god ultimately is the one who provides that god is ultimately the one that we are working for one day a week to change our mind about what's most important to put god back in his rightful place as the authority and the king of our lives One day a week to establish our identity and our value in the God who made us and loves us unconditionally, not in the work that we produce. One day a week to launch us then into the next six days where Sabbath then would be a central motif in our lives. We need to rest. And so I do want to share with you where we're going before I come to the conclusion of where we're going as a church, very briefly. I want to talk about where we're going as a church and very generically, I'm just going to say this. Um, back in March, we got together as um, a number of the partners, about 50 or 60 of the partners of Restoration came together, and we brainstormed together where God was leading us. And we prayed about it for a long time. And, and here are three directions that we believe God is leading us over the next five to ten years. We want to reach the recovery community within our reach so that every person in recovery identifies Jesus Christ as their higher power and find true and lasting freedom and peace to surrender to him. That is one thing that we want to emphasize over the next five to ten years. A second area is that we want to reach the younger generations with the gospel. Restoration will not be the reason younger generations disdain the church. Restoration church will not be the reason that the younger generations do not know Jesus. We will do everything that we can to reach the younger generations with the hope and the purpose of Christ. And lastly, we will focus on providing Jesus-centered, affordable mental health help to our community 
possibly within the development of a restoration counseling center. Yeah, so we're going to be working at these over the next five to ten years. Um, and I'll leave these very generic for the time being, because here is where we're going in the next year. We are going to rest. We have been working so hard and so tirelessly for so long to get the bridge up and running. So for the next year, we're going to rest. This doesn't mean we won't do anything or offer anything. We're going to rest from pushing ahead into new initiatives. We're going to focus on allowing our roots, both individually and corporately, to grow deep into Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to focus on for the next year. And beyond, of course. That's that's a key focus of what we do all the time. But we are going to focus in the next year on letting our roots grow deep into Jesus Christ here at Restoration Church. The American way is self-dependence and autonomy, to be self-made and to do things our own way by our own strength. And Jesus said this, and I believe him because I've experienced it myself. I think some of you have as well. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And so friends, I, I want to be a community full of individuals who are so connected to the vine that his fruit is discovered in abundance here. And that all of the world then can come and taste the fruit of Christ because of how deeply ingrained we are into Jesus Christ. And his fruit is just flourishing from this place. And my friends, we cannot do that if we carry a pace that never stops. Individually, corporately, we cannot do that if we do not abide in Christ. And so my encouragement to you, take a break. Rest in Christ. And let the fruit of his spirit grow within you. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have called us to the last 10 years and how we're seeing the fruit of that labor come to fruition here. So exciting. We do pray over the bridge and the work that you're going to be able to accomplish through that place. God, may it be glorious for your name. And for the next 10, Father, and for this season of Sabbath here at Restoration Church, I want to thank you for what you've called us to. And as we abide in you, Father, may your fruit develop in incredible clusters. And I just pray then that the world will come and taste and see that you are good. That you are good. We depend and we rely on you to do this through us. We ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. One service, 9 a.m. next week. Hope you'll be joining us then. God bless.